Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. We're looking at Ephesians 1. Uh, I'll be reading to you in a second from uh, 15, verse 15 through 23. But before we get started, I, I just, there's a lot going on here. Okay. Before we get started, I, I just want to note just how sweet of a moment this is for us. Uh, Shonda and I and my boys, one of which is standing and looking away from me right now, is, are so glad uh, to, be, to find ourselves with you this morning. Uh, months of prayer, uh, thoughtful discussions, and thinking and talking with each other uh, have led us to this point where I can stand before you. I want you to know what an honor it is, what a joy it is. It just feels like a sweet joy to be here. I landed on this text uh, because in thinking about the first things I'd want to say to a church is I'd want to encourage them and strengthen them. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in this passage, and that's what led me to this. And that's my hope to be able to do with you this morning. So if you look together with me, starting at verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me pray. Father, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be good and right and pleasing before you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, I ask for a clear head and loving words for these friends. Please help me, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, I've gotten a chance to work with a number of wonderful pastors, but one of, the, one of my favorites that I've gotten to serve alongside is a wonderful man, and he's not shy, but he would be embarrassed to hear me go on about him, so I won't give you his name. But one of his skills, I think, is just his ability to affirm people. He's an encourager through and through. And when we think of encouragement, there's a lot of different ways we can take that. There's, the, you know, the way we might cheer people on a field and tell people they can do it. We all know what it feels like to hear affirmation that might be setting us up to hear something hard, right? We all know what that feels like. But what makes this guy special is his ability to look at a person and really sense what drives them, the things that are important to them, and affirm them in a really meaningful way. And I've noticed this about him. And one time I took him aside and I just said, hey, is this the way you're wired or what? Like, what's going on here? Um, and he said this to me. I think this, is, uh, this was really insightful. He said, Charles, people are listening 
to a profound number of critical voices all day long, internally and externally. I think that's true. And then he said, sometimes the very best thing that you can do for someone that you're looking to serve is to offer an encouraging word to them. And I I bring that before you because I think that's what Paul's doing in this letter and certainly in this passage. This passage explodes with encouragement for the Christian. It is throwing all kinds of reasons uh, to rejoice in good news at these people. And we can say a lot about what Paul is gunning for here, but at the very least, he's looking to encourage them that they might simply be strengthened in their faith. And that's what I want to do with you this morning, is to look at this passage encouraging you about things that are true, that God has said are true, that you too might be encouraged and strengthened in your walk with Jesus. All right, you ready? What I'm going to do is I'm going to say Paul looks to encourage them by pointing at their reputation, their identity, and their security. All right, their reputation, their identity, and their security. Paul starts by talking about their reputation. I'm looking at, at verse 15 there. And, uh, and you can think of Paul as one of their founding pastors. There's, an, there's just an incredible story about the planting of this church in the city of Ephesus in Acts 19. It's a cool story. I would encourage you to read it. There is no shortage of drama around that church plant. And, uh, and so you see all the things that happen, and Paul's right there in the midst of it. And if you look at a chapter later, you see a story where Paul meets with the Ephesian elders. And, uh, and there's a time where he's saying goodbye to them. And that time is filled with prayer and tears. It's this mournful goodbye. And the only reason I bring that up is because you get a real sense in that passage of the deep affection that, that runs between Paul and this church there. And so Paul is, is uh, encouraging them, and he's several years removed. He's in, in prison in Rome. Ephesus is in Asia Minor, so it's several years away, many miles away, and he's hearing reports about this church. And he says to them, when I hear about you, these are the things that I hear. And it would be powerfully affirming to get a report like this one. He's hearing things that any godly church leader or church member would want said about their church. You see it in verse 15. He says, I am hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. He's saying, uh, before, well, before I move on, what I want to say is the animating effect that this simple sentence would have had on a congregation like that. That every church has a reputation, and this one is yours. That news of what you stand for, who you are, the ways you take good care of each other, is spreading all the way to Rome. That's an encouraging report in itself, but it's also encouraging just to consider what what a report or a reputation like that would mean to them. Because the Bible teaches us, from cover to cover, that it's God who adds to his people. It's it's God who protects his people and preserves them. It's God who causes them to prosper. It's him who rescues them. And when a church grows and when a church flourishes and people hear about it, there's really only one person to thank for that kind of activity. And, And I say that because, man, I've sat in dozens of strategy meetings over the years in ministry. 
And, and those things are important. It's important to get together and wrestle with what the Lord might be doing and what's on our hearts. Those things are good. But sometimes you can, uh, you can lose sight of just who it is who takes care of his church and causes his church to grow, right? And, and stories about what God does with his people are just all over the Bible. Um, here are just a few. Uh, one is where um, God is bringing uh, his people into a land that he promised to them. And it's a land that he describes it as flowing with milk and honey. It's fit for their growth. And, uh, and he, sa- he takes them in and he says to Joshua, don't be afraid. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And in that story, what you see is God protecting them, preserving them, and establishing them in a place where they can flourish and grow. Uh, you also see this, I think, in the words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies, this is a bold prophecy. Isaiah prophesies to a group of people in exile, and, and God is saying to them, Extend, extend the place of your tent because I'm going to add to your people that God is the primary agent who accomplishes those things. And then, of course, you see it throughout the book of Acts and in elsewhere in the historic like planting and prospering of churches that of, full of people that come to know the gospel and absorb it from them, for themselves. And in all of these stories, there's simply one major player who's at work here who takes care of his church and adds to it and causes it to prosper. And so the root of this encouragement is simply to note that God has seen fit in their midst to cause their church to prosper and flourish and serve their city well. And I note this simply to say this to you, that you can be encouraged about your church. And, and not just because you have wonderful people here, although you really do. I've gotten a chance to meet some of you, and this church is stocked with wonderful people that, you know, I'm excited to get to know. And not just because you have a wonderful staff at this place, although you really have a wonderful staff at this place. But you can be encouraged about your church because God loves his church. And he's the one who takes care of his church and causes it to prosper and commits it to his mission and uses it according to his purposes. That's the root of any encouraging reputation of this church. And so we can find great joy in knowing that God preserves his church and he protects his people. So be encouraged. And then he moves on and he starts to say that this reputation about them has compelled him to pray for them without ceasing. Now, I, you know, that would be amazing to hear that a pastor is simply like one of our former pastors is far away and they are praying without ceasing for us. But it's what's in the prayer. He starts talking about their identity, like who they are as a people. And the prayer starts with the desire for them to grow in the knowledge of who God is. Like, that's important to notice because Paul isn't simply giving them, you know, a new key or some kind of knowledge that they're not aware of. What he's calling them to do is to more fully apprehend things that they're already aware of. And I want to focus in on this verse, verse 18. It says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the hope to which he has called you, and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now look, there's a lot going on there. That's a loaded verse, isn't it? 
But Paul is saying two things about them that I want to land on. First is he calls them a hopeful people. He expresses this desire to grow in their understanding that they are called to hope, that they're called to to stand firm in hope no matter what surrounds them. That's a good translation. Called to hope and he's praying that they would grow in their hope. But then he starts talking about how they're a really valuable people. And I'm looking at inheritance here. He describes them as a community of people with immense value when he prays that they know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, often when we see that word inheritance in the Bible, we're, we're thinking about our inheritance, which is, which is the anchor for our hope, right? We're thinking about the new heavens and the new earth that are promised to us. It's this sweet vision of all people, the whole earth reconciled with God and with each other. That, that's, the, that's our inheritance, and that's true, and that holds us in hope. But this passage is actually talking about God looking at us and seeing his inheritance. It's, it, it's, and it, man, this is incredible once you start to get a sense for this. It says the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It, this is a description about you. That when God looks at you, he gets excited about you because you are his inheritance. And when he looks at his inheritance, he sees riches and glory. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible in a world that's filled with long-held sadness that transcends generations... And a, and a sickness that's all around us that we, that we see the effects of it. When the world feels so troubled, how am I supposed to stand in the middle of it with hope? And how is it possible when I assess the selfish desires of my own heart and the guilt of my soul, how is it possible for me to see myself as somebody that God looks at with eyes of love and rejoices over. We have to hold on to what Paul is saying here because if these things are true, then sin and sadness don't get to have the last word about who we are in the state of the world. Our creator God gets that, gets that right to have the last word. And he doesn't just make this claim about us in this word, but he proves it to us. And where does he prove it? When you look at Jesus on the cross and you see him burdened with the weight of our sin, making a payment for our sin that we couldn't pay, then you see Jesus who says, nothing, I will allow nothing to stand between me and the people I love. And you see the desire of God, the resolute purpose to redeem his people from the very sin that affects us, and not just us, but the entire world. And you assess the value of something, anything, by what you're willing to pay for it. And Jesus paid everything. Jesus said, I will give everything. It's as if to say he looked at you and said, you were worth it to him. And so you get a great sense for the value that God places on you just by looking at what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
He sees you with great value. And if this is true, if this is how God sees you, then this has to affect how you see you, right? Because in my experience, I think one of the hardest things for us to really believe is that we're more defined by God's disposition toward us than anything else. Like, if you're in Christ this morning, if you look to him with eyes of faith, trusting him with the weight of your life for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have been set free. You have been set free and you have been united to Christ. And so no longer are we invited to see ourselves through the lens of what we have accomplished or what we might look like in the mirror or what other people might say about us. You have value because God says you have value to him. And nothing can take that away. That is something that you have that's inviolable. And if this is true of you, this also has to affect the way you see those around you. Because if this glorious truth is true of you, and I'm saying to you, Paul is saying to you, and God is saying to you that this is the truest way to see yourself, then it's also true of the faithful one that's sitting next to you, right? Right? Or, or maybe six feet away from you or across the aisle. If, if it's true of you, it's also true of that person who loves Jesus and is across the room and maybe gets on your last nerve. Like, that's true. It has to affect the way that we see each other. We need each other. And remember the report that Paul heard. He said, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Your faith in Jesus and your love for all the saints. We cannot separate those two things. And so be encouraged that God himself is calling us to grow in understanding something that's already there. That your identity is, is to be a people of hope and that you are someone with immense value in the eyes of God. And then he moves from there with one more encouragement I want to give you. He starts talking about the power of the risen Christ. The power of God that's being exercised. And, and the argument that I want to make is that It's in God's power that we find our security, okay? The power of God. He starts rambling on. I mean, rambling on might not be a a great way to put it, but um, what, what one pastor said is that he's being grammatically excessive. Like he's piling up all these words meant to describe the sheer scope, the breadth of God's power. Look at verse 19 and 20. He says, the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So you see, God's demonstrating his power over even death when he raises Jesus uh, from the dead. So you see God's power in Jesus' resurrection, but you also see it in the exaltation. Jesus is seated at God's right hand, where he shares in the authority of God. And then he starts to describe this authority over, over all things. It's like it's spread out everywhere. It says he's a far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named. Paul is on a roll here. He's saying this authority finally finds its culmination as head over all things to the church, over all and in all. And so this includes everything. Everything. This includes all earthly authority. This includes every hostile power. This includes every difficult coworker. This includes everything that feels stronger than we are. There is simply nothing that sits out outside or sits exempt 
from the authority of Christ over all things, because His is the name that is above every name. And the argument that I want to make is that it's in the place of God's power is where we find our greatest security. It's like just like you see your value by looking at Jesus Christ on the cross, redeeming you. So can you find your greatest security by looking at the risen Christ who's ruling for you. Because how can I say that? Because Paul starts this whole description of power off by talking about, this is what he says in verse 19. He says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. That could also read, for us who believe. Paul is saying that this immense power that God has that extends over all things is being exercised on behalf of his people that he loves. And there is nothing so secure than resting in someone who is yet so powerful and yet so compassionate toward you. And if you're like the rest of us in a search for peace that can feel so elusive sometimes, I want you to know that's where you find it. Peace and security, resting safely in the power of God, who's in the business of exercising it on your behalf. That's the sweetest place to be. Let me close by giving you a story. And this is from 1932. America's in the throes of a Great Depression. And uh, this was, a, of course, a difficult time for anyone, but it was especially difficult for uh, World War I veterans who had returned from the front, and it was just a very hard time finding work. And uh, in 1932, uh, a group of protesters went up to Washington, D.C., and it was called the Bonus Army because this is a, a group of World War I veterans. And, and it's complicated, but essentially what they wanted to do was make an argument for why they should maybe receive the bonuses that they were due for their service um, a lo- earlier to help tide them over for the difficult times of the Depression. And uh, what ensued was simply tragic. So I think it's safe to say those in power at the time were threatened by the presence of these veterans marching on the White House, and, uh, and tear gas was used, shots were fired. Uh, I believe one veteran died during this time. Some people called it the Battle of Washington. It was just awful. Power was exerted to protect power. And people were harmed. A year later, 1933, uh, the, the Bonus Army came again. And this time a new administration was in place. This was uh, FDR. And uh, the, they assembled in Washington, D.C. And instead of dispatching the army to tend to this, Eleanor Roosevelt herself, the first lady at the time, went to them. And catch this. She sees them in their need. She moves toward them. And and without any press or Secret Service protection, she makes her way toward them and spends several hours in their camp with them. 
One story says she was uh, eating beans out of a tin can with her bare fingers, and she even shared her coat with a woman. Someone sees somebody in their need and moves toward them. Now, they weren't actually able to give them what they were asking for. But what do you think those people left Washington with? Maybe they felt like they were seen or known and that they could trust this power that was being exercised on their behalf. If you're in Christ this morning, my hope is that you might be encouraged. Because your trust rests safely in the one who saw us in our need, who came near, enters our struggle, redeems us from a debt that we could not pay, and now we are held with a promise that we belong to him forever, in this age and in the one to come. Let me pray. Father, take these words. Holy Spirit, take these words and sink them deep into our hearts that we might learn to trust you. Help us to believe these things that we are straining to believe, and I pray you would nourish our hearts with the encouragement we need. Strengthen us in Jesus, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.